California's environmental justice advocates have made it clear for years that clever schemes to reduce global carbon emissions can still permit harm to local communities if polluters are allowed to keep on polluting. Now, with the Sunrise Movement and the Green New Deal, that message is going national. How has California been at the vanguard of environmental justice? And how can we protect the most vulnerable people when we're trying to fight climate change? From the University of California, Irvine, I'm Aaron Orlowski, and you're listening to the UCI Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Mendez, an assistant professor of urban planning and public policy at UCI. He's also the author of the book, Climate Change from the Streets, How Conflict and Collaboration Strengthened the Environmental Justice Movement. Professor Mendez, thank you for joining me today on the UCI podcast. Thank you, Aaron. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, of course. So California has a very progressive reputation on environmental issues, and it's really seen as being at the forefront, especially on topics like climate change and clean energy. But I want to ask you, do you think that we deserve that reputation? Absolutely. California has consistently in the last few decades been at the forefront of broader national and global experimentation around climate change and sustainability in general. And it also has been at the forefront of integrating environmental justice into climate change policy and sustainability policy, primarily driven by social movements, uh, low-income communities of color, advocating for more public health and protections for these individuals. Is that, I mean, you just mentioned the low-income communities of color advocating and this movement towards environmental justice in California. Has that always been the case or is that a more recent development? And let me back up a little bit here as well. Yes, California absolutely deserves that sort of mantle of being one of the more progressive leaders on environmental issues and climate change, but California can always do better. And that's where the environmental justice groups have really come in and saying that not only should we be looking at the majority population and how how we protect our oceans, our lands and that majority population, but how do we protect and safeguard the most vulnerable communities, those communities at the front line of impacts from climate change and the pollution that's coming from a lot of noxious facilities that are disproportionately Uh, cited in low-income communities of color. So low-income communities of color have, for decades, have been fighting for environmental justice. That is ensuring that the environmental baths and the noxious facilities are not disproportionately cited and located in their communities. And we see this back from the United Farm Workers uh, event in April. We celebrated Cesar Chavez Day. And that, that struggle for pesticide reform and labor reform and in essence, was one of the first mainstream level views of environmental justice here in California. So, I mean, that goes back a, a long ways. And California has always had this strain of, of environmental justice in its environmental movement. Yes, um, in different various forms. Um, we didn't always call it environmental justice. We called it either labor rights or we called it occupational health and safety But there always was one uh, form or another of environmental racism and environmental justice. 
And groups have been advocating for a long time to ensure that their needs and demands are met. Well, and then you wrote a book that examined the environmental justice movement in recent years. Uh, The book was Climate Change from the Streets, and it really looks at the years from 2006 to the present. So what were some of the changes or what were some of the uh, advances that the environmental justice movement made in that time, in this recent history? So, uh, yes, I I do have a new book called Climate Change from the Streets. It was published through Yale University Press. And that is a historical and a a contemporary analysis of how uh, low-income communities of color have been advocating on climate change to be more focused on neighborhood scales and human and equitable impacts. Previously, when I first started this project, uh, I was working in the California State Legislature um, as a senior consultant, then as a lobbyist and gubernatorial appointee. So I saw the various behind-the-scenes conceptualizations, battles, and conflicts around climate change. And the subtitle of the book is How Conflict and Collaboration Strengthened the Environmental Justice Movement. So in 2006 and earlier, this idea of climate change was really abstract and really focused on the global. So we used to symbolize climate change as that really tired symbol of the polar bear, that we would see that polar bear on that melting ice cap out there in the wilderness, out there um, somewhere else, but not in our backyards. And environmental justice group really trying to disrupt that image of climate change, not saying that the polar bears were not important, but really to also refocus back on neighborhood level um, impacts that were happening. So in 2006, there was a lot of um, tension and conflict of trying to rescale or reconceptualize what climate change meant. This conflict was really centered around traditional environmentalists or what some people may call mainstream environmentalists, such as the NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council, and EDF, the Environmental Defense Fund, that really wanted to focus on that global and statewide scale and did not want to focus on public health for the most part and local impacts. So that was the main tension there of what type of policy were we going to be moving forward with and centering Was it going to be the global statewide perspective or was it going to be one focus on local health and local neighborhoods? Well, I want to dig into that more in just a second. But you mentioned um, that you started this book while you were working uh, in the state legislature and had during some of your earlier career uh, experiences. So let's talk a little bit more about your background um, and how you really started working on environmental justice. Uh, And, you know, you grew up in a Latino immigrant community in Los Angeles. So how has that experience uh, growing up in that community influenced your work today? It most definitely influenced my work. I really approach it and I'm very clear about my positionality or my lived and embodied experience. I grew up in uh, communities of Los Angeles that face multiple environmental threats either the siting of landfills, dealing with a lot of pollution and smog, or um, facilities that were creating a lot of uh, local pollution. I saw how these were impacting my neighbors, my community members, and family members, either in terms of respiratory diseases like asthma, cancer rates. And at the same time, I saw community groups trying to resist some of these forms of environmental racism and environmental inequalities and campaign against expansions of these toxic or noxious facilities. So that really inspired me 
at an early age of the power of social movements and to question why did the largely uh, Latino immigrant to working class community that I lived in look the way it did and had so many environmental uh, hazards in our community. So that eventually led me to uh, looking at the field of urban planning, uh, because that really looks at not only the, so, uh, the sociological theories, um, but also the political factors and really trying to uh, connect theory with practice and come up with substantive policy solutions, both at the local, statewide and national and global levels. And that eventually led me to pursue those degrees in, in urban planning and, and spent several years in Sacramento focusing on environmental justice at a statewide level. Well, and you will soon be able to bring some of that perspective to the Los Angeles Regional Water Quality Control Board, um, where you were recently appointed to that board. So congratulations, first of all. Um, but, but what kind of perspective do you really hope to bring to that board? Yes, thank you. So uh, uh, Governor uh, Gavin Newsom uh, uh, recently appointed me in late January of this year to the Los Angeles Regional Water Quality Control Board. This board uh, regulates water quality in a region of 11 million people. So it's one of the largest, most populous um, regional boards in the state. Wow. And one with the most responsibility in terms of how to deal with the regulation and water quality throughout the Los Angeles and Ventura and Santa Barbara basins. And from my perspective that I'm really interested in is providing that equity lens and also that analytical lens that I I marry between my academic work and my practical political experience and policy experience of how can we regulate our water more efficiently and primarily how can we do it at a a more streamlined and equitable process in local communities of color. And with that said, the, the problems of climate change are increasing and putting um, additional stressors on our ability to uh, have uh, adequate sources of affordable drinking water. So I'm also interested in looking at water re- resiliency and, um, and how can we prepare for the impacts of climate change on our water systems. Well, and speaking of climate change, let's get back to to your book. And as you mentioned, you know, you were documenting the stories of these environmental activists who were seeking to make the climate change conversation more local and not quite so abstract uh, or global or, or national, but really about the the local impacts. And the the book follows this climate change program that California has instituted called Cap and Trade, and it tells the intersecting stories of some activists in California, Mexico, and Brazil. So first of all, how does Cap and Trade work? And then why does California's program affect other countries? In basic terms, uh, Cap and Trade, first of all, is a what we call sort of a, a market-based system. And this system is often seen as a very economically feasible and cost-efficient manner to reduce emissions uh, from polluting uh, industries. But at the same time, it has created a lot of conflict from individuals such as environmental justice groups that say that cap and trade may have um, a disproportionate effect on certain demographic groups, primarily low-income communities of color that are living next to polluting industries. So cap and trade um, is this idea that there's a cap. And I'm going to use really simple numbers. So like say there's a cap of 100 tons and uh, you're a facility in uh, low-income communities of color and you only can pollute up to uh, 100 tons. And if you want to pollute uh, more than that, you have to buy 
pollution credits, or uh, either through the state, uh, state auction, or from another polluting business that is actually not a polluting above the cap. So you have a choice. Either you can pollute up to 100 tons. If you want to pollute over that, you have to buy pollution credits from someone else, or you could upgrade your facility to um, reduce your emissions. So that's that's sort of the, the idea there. And this, I, this is seen as being a sort of a geographically neutral, um, that anyone throughout the state um, could be doing this. And it, it doesn't matter how many of the polluting industries are buying on credits in a certain region or zone. All that matters is that that cap, the, the, the statewide cap is not reached. And environmental justice groups are quite concerned with this because they see and uh, research has uh, shown that a lot of these polluting facilities are not upgrading their uh, technologies, but they're instead just buying additional permits and continue to uh, engage for the most part in business as usual. And so you can imagine environmental justice groups are concerned that these industries uh, that are fossil fuel based are not reducing their emission reductions um, next to uh, the communities that they're uh, in the communities that they're living in. So they're really concerned with this because while the, the climate change program is focused only on greenhouse gas emissions, carbon primarily, the, the burning of fossil fuel also creates local pollution uh, that stays at the local level at the same time. So they seek uh, the climate change program as an opportunity to address multiple forms of pollution, not just global pollution like greenhouse gas emissions. Specifically, you know, I think your book documents the the story of some activists in Richmond in the Bay Area who are concerned about the facility there continuing to, to pollute. Um, but then another part of the story also looks at how communities in other countries can be affected when companies buy what are called carbon offsets to account for the pollution that they're creating. Can you describe a bit more uh, what those offsets are and you know how did the activists in those other countries really respond to California's program? So carbon offsets are this idea that people uh, anywhere else in the world can create these pollution credits, at least global carbon offsets. Uh, a polluting industry can pay somebody else anywhere in the world to reduce their, their carbon footprint, their carbon emissions, uh, and then sell that emissions reduction back to uh, polluting industries. So the idea is that landowners in Mexico, Brazil, or other places are going to be paid not to engage in deforestation, that's the cutting down of trees for logging, extracting oil, and other types of land uses, and that instead they're going to be paid to keep those trees intact at least for 100 years where they can sequester carbon. And uh, they're paid through what's called carbon offsets. Each offset could be uh, ranged anywhere between $6 to $12 or more. And uh, they're paid for each ton of carbon that they can prove that that one tree or multiple trees are sequestering carbon. So uh, these are high in high demand for many uh, polluting industries because they're cheaper than uh, the cap-and-trade uh, credits. So what do you think... You know, if, if if California were to design a different program other than cap and trade that really accounted for this environmental justice perspective, what would that program be? What do you think is a better policy? 
Well, that's a difficult uh, decision. I, I, I think it's a very complicated decision. I think that the the biggest uh, issue that we see with cap and trade is that the polluting industries that are heavily concentrated in low communities of color are still engaging in business as usual for the most part and continue to pay to pollute. And a system, it needs to be done that's more stringent and more equitable that uh, puts the incentive for these polluting industries uh, to actually change technology or and change their business practices to more sustainable ones. So we need stronger regulation on site and be focusing first and foremost on those communities that are disproportionate, experiencing the impacts of local and global pollution. Well, let's uh, let's move really close to the present here. So President Biden recently announced a $2 trillion infrastructure package that has a huge focus on clean energy and specifically clean energy jobs. And this isn't quite the Green New Deal that many environmental activists have been asking for for a long time, um, but it would do significant work to fight against climate change. But so regarding the Green New Deal, do you think this is a, a really new policy or, or why is the Green New Deal not really new? Yes, I often argue that there's nothing new in the Green New Deal because low-income communities of color and places like California have been advocating for these equity, public health, jobs, and poverty alleviation policies tied to our economic uh, protection paradigms. So they've been advocating this for years. The Green New Deal, I'm strongly supportive of it, and I'm grateful for the opportunity that individuals such as uh, Congress uh, member Ocasio-Cortez and the Sunrise Movement have done in getting this dialogue around climate change, racial justice, environmental justice at the forefront of our political debates around climate change. So that's a key thing to uh, really acknowledge, but also to remember the history of groups that have been advocating for these very type of measures for decades, if not at least for a century. So what do you make of President Biden's infrastructure package uh, and its focus on clean energy? Do you think it takes the right approach on this issue? I I think it's a great starting point. Obviously, this is going to be a couple months or weeks of debate um, in Congress on what the ultimate package will look like. But I think there's a a really strong focus of how can we get these technologies and this infrastructure that's sustainable either in terms of renewable technologies, electrifying our transportation systems, or other types of issues that are first and foremost being targeted to environmental justice communities. So the Biden administration has made a pledge that, you know, climate investments, at least 40 percent of the climate investments are going to be targeted towards environmental justice uh, communities. And that's a goal and a mandate that California has set. So it's, it's great to see some of the innovations that California has done on transferring to the national level. What other ways should leaders, both in California and at the national level, uh, incorporate environmental justice principles into their policymaking? How can we make this a real reality going forward? One of the key things is it's acknowledging that environmental justice exists and, and almost every aspect of our environmental and our transportation and our energy sectors. And really starting with the question, who, who's the most harmed from our existing systems and infrastructure? 
And how can we design policy that centers them at the outset of crafting of this policy? Oftentimes, environmental justice is something that's left to be dealt with later. And it's sort of this last thing that people feel that they uh, have to just casually address. But I think first and foremost is starting with this idea of, you know, who's being served? Who is this policy going to benefit and who's being left out and really centering these people that have been suffering for many generations and their communities. Professor Mendez, thank you for joining me today on the UCI podcast. Thank you, Aaron. It was such a pleasure. The UCI podcast is a production of Strategic Communications and Public Affairs at the University of California, Irvine. Please subscribe to the UCI podcast wherever you listen.